0: You can open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. I'd like to read with you verses 13 through 16, and then we will pray and then begin working through our text. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised for He has prepared for them a city. Thank you. You may be seated. As you're being seated, I'll ask you to bow with me to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I do thank You for this day, and I thank You for this opportunity to come together. Father, to gather around Your Word. Oh, Father, I praise You for giving it to us, and I ask, oh God, that You would minister to our hearts father direct us according to these words for your glory father i do ask that you would lead me and give me clarity in my mind and the ability to communicate your word rightly O father guard me from error i pray that you would shut my mouth if i would speak wrongly about you or your word father i ask that you would grant boldness and authority to declare what is true Lord, in a way that surpasses the academic or the theoretical, but in a way that moves us in our souls and brings us into a living experience of fellowship with our God. Lord, I do ask that Your Son, Jesus Christ, would be exalted. Lord, let us glory in Him. And I pray that He would receive all the glory and all the praise. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of this particular message is a charge to every one of us, and it is this. Seek a heavenly homeland. Seek a heavenly homeland. Lord willing, we will work through these verses 13 through 16, but I do have a a short bit of introduction I'd like to share with you, and hopefully you'll recognize much of this as you've been going through Hebrews on Sundays. But just initially, let's consider the overarching context of these verses we're looking at. The context of these verses, calling our attention to these saints of old, comes immediately in the light of the charge of the author to the Hebrews concerning apostasy and those who would fall away from the faith, those who would be led into false doctrine. And initially, I'd like to just give two clarifications I believe there are many errors that people have when it comes to the subject of apostasy. And the two primary errors, and all errors are probably going to be related to these two errors in some way, are these. The first is, when considering apostasy, there are those who will teach that you as a Christian person can lose your salvation. That you can fall away from the faith after having been genuinely born again. That is the first error. The second error concerning apostasy is that every professing believer is guaranteed not to be lost and not to fall away. And fortunate enough for us, both of these errors are addressed clearly all the way back in Hebrews chapter 3. If you would, you can take these down. We'll have several references, I believe, on the screen. And if you miss any of them, I'd be happy to give them to you afterwards. But Hebrews chapter 3 we're told a few things concerning this issue of apostasy. Verses 12-14 through we find, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So, demonstrated in in those verses clearly are two realities. That there are those who profess to be Christians who fall away from the living God. And notice... This is significant. Don't assume that because you are one who the elders in this church or other Christians call you brother or sister and say, I believe that person is genuinely saved, that does not necessarily mean that it is so. Here we have one inspired by God to write Scripture, the author to the Hebrews, referring to people he believed were brothers. And he says, Beware lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Just because a person professes faith in Christ does not mean that their soul is secure. You can believe that you cannot lose your salvation and not be one who's ever entered into to salvation. And the second reality in these verses that we see is this. The text goes on to tell us what is the explanation for those who appear to know Christ and then do fall away. He tells us this. He says that there is this hardened, evil, unbelieving heart. Now we all know, or we ought to know, that every Christian God promises in the New Covenant that He will give a new heart. He will take out the heart of stone and give a heart of flesh. In other words, if someone has an evil, unbelieving heart that's still hardened in sin, they have not been born again. Thus, they do fall away. And even in the context, we see this in verse 14. That for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our profession to the end so here's the teaching of the author to the hebrews for us already that not everyone who professes faith is saved and those who are saved those who have come to share in christ will endure to the end they will not finally fall away so my question in the beginning here with you today is this are you one who has come to share in christ Are you one who has come to know and love Jesus Christ as He's revealed to you by the Holy Spirit in this Bible? Do you see and love Jesus? Because that's the explanation. If you fall away, it's because you've never come to share in Christ. There's no such thing as having been united to Jesus and then having that union broken. You cannot be separated from the love of God in Christ if you have been united to Him. And yet the question comes, Have you been born again? Do you really know Him? And if you have, if you have trusted in Christ, you are completely secure because of Christ Himself. But if you have not, every second that you live is a moment that could end with your rejection and falling away from Jesus. And here when we come to our text in Hebrews 11, it comes to us as an appeal to those who are truly Christian people to stand firm in the Gospel in which they've believed. The charge of our text in Hebrews 11 is that we would continue in the faith by remembering exactly who our faith is in. And just quickly be reminded of these things as we look into these verses. We're not looking to measure the faith of these particular people as though there were anything in these men in and of themselves that caused them to endure to the end. And it wasn't faith in faith. Well, I know that I believe. It wasn't faith in their own works or faith in themselves. It is looking to Christ and Him alone and what He's accomplished for us. Just one final thought or text to consider from Hebrews 10, where I know you've been recently, consider again verses 19 through 22 of Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So here's the confidence. Here's the charge. Assurance. Having assurance. How many people, I wonder here, are those who have professed to know and love Jesus Christ and yet so much of your life is marked by a lack of assurance? What are you to do in the, in the moments where you don't have that assurance? Well, this book, the author of the Hebrews, is telling us there's assurance to be had. There's confidence to be had. What is the source or grounds of that confidence? Well, we see in the book of Hebrews, generally speaking, that the basis of our confidence as Christian people, the author of Hebrews is telling us we need to be aware of the reality of the constant difficulties of a fallen world. Is that honest? Don't you love the honesty of the Scriptures? If you and I were trying to start a religion and we thought, you know, we want to present this so clearly and so beautifully that we don't highlight or touch any of the negative things, we would not have included Ananias and Sapphira if we were recording the beginning of the church. might give Christianity a bad name. And yet the Scriptures clearly tell us of these issues in the life of the church. There is reality of suffering, difficulty, and strife And God, in His grace and mercy, gives us truth in His Word to hold us up and give us security and assurance that we might endure. And so therefore, Hebrews 11 comes to us today, as I said already, not as a testimony of the greatness of these saints who have gone before, but a testimony of God's faithfulness at work in them. And I believe... That in the challenges that you and I face and are likely going to continue to face more and more apart from a revival that we heard about already, apart from that reality, we need to cling to these eternal promises that are ours in Christ. And God has demonstrated His faithfulness in these examples. These examples are set forth as an encouragement against apostasy. They're to give us hope in the face of adversity and the power of God to preserve. These are the things. So here's my question. And with this, we will begin moving into our text. How is it that these figures we're going to look at? How is it that they endured? What was the source of their hope? And what exactly did God preserve them unto? With all of that, look with me at verse 13. We read this. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. The first thing we see, these all died in faith, is that these people died. You ought to well know one of the most common heresies that you will hear today is that faith guarantees the absence of suffering. That if you only believe, if you believe strongly enough, then you can escape and avoid suffering and difficulty in life. And clearly, we're told these all died in faith. Their faith didn't deliver them from death. And that's something I often have been inclined to want to ask a prosperity preacher. How old is old enough? I mean, if you're telling me that if I have enough faith, then I can be healed, it's always some health issue that is coming about in a point of death. So how old is old enough? Are we just going to say, well, 115, 120 years, that's old enough. Now it's okay to die? No, the reality is these all died in faith and that immediately tells us that their faith was beyond the realities of death and suffering. It wasn't exclusive to a life of bliss and of ease. And that ought to be an encouraging thing to us. Consider it this way from our Lord in John chapter 8. His engagement with the Jews and what He told them concerning the faith of those who've gone before and the reality of their death. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 48, we find this. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? In light of those things, the reality of the death of those who died in faith. And here our verse, beginning verse 13, is telling us and forcing us to admit that life is full of hardship and suffering and death. And I don't know of very many ideas which are more arrogant or ill-conceived than the belief that if you have enough faith in God, it's going to shield you from any and all suffering that you might endure. And if you hear someone telling you that if you only had enough faith, you would definitely be healed, or you would definitely avoid or escape financial difficulty or any other issue of success and failure, well, the answer to that is run as fast as you can from teaching that tells you that. Obviously, we know the Scripture tells us God is good. Every good and perfect gift comes to us from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shadow due to turning or change. God's goodness is on display in every good thing He gives us. But we're not guaranteed the absence of suffering. These died in faith. You see, Hebrews 9.27, you will recall surely that just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Believing in Jesus Christ. And hopefully you're thinking, oh, wait a minute, Jesus said in John, if you believe in My Word, you're not going to taste death. And I hope you're wondering, well, help us to understand that. If death and suffering is a reality in the life of Christians, how do we to understand that? Well, hold off for just a moment. We shall return to that, Lord willing. But here's the question. If death and suffering are universal consequences of sin, and they are, then as long as we're living in a sin-cursed world, there's going to be misery, suffering, and death. And so how is it that that can be true? How How is it that the reality of suffering and death are supposed to strengthen and encourage Christians against apostasy? Does that encourage your soul here today? I'm starting off by telling you, okay, this text is to be strengthening, encouraging, building you up and charging you to press forward in the things you are going through in life. How is me telling you, well, you're going to suffer. All who live in, seek to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. You're going to have difficulty. You're going to have strife. How does that prepare and equip you to be able to serve the Lord well in your life? How does that encourage you? Does it give you a sense of resolve, of renewed commitment to hear that death and suffering are going to be constant in this world, even if you're a believer? How is that going to encourage you? Well, in lot of these things, we press forward. You see, we're confronted with the essential nature from the very beginning of the hope with these saints of old had. In other words, I'm telling you this. If the faith of Abraham or any other saint who has died was limited to the temporal, then their faith would have been utterly vain. Imagine that. And that's essentially the way that the Jews are arguing. Jesus, you're telling me that this figure, this Abraham, that he evidently he must not have believed. He must not have been really a child of God because he died. And you're saying those who believe in you are not going to taste death. Abraham must not have known you. They're assuming and looking at it. Their lens for life and reality was so temporally driven, they couldn't conceive of a realm in which not seeing death could also include a physical death. They couldn't even imagine it. It didn't make sense to them. And my question does it make sense to you? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15-19 that if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're of all people. Most to be pitied. And so I ask, what is your faith tied to? Here is one who's trusting in Christ. How many Christians do you meet, you'll talk to, and they'll say, I completely agree with this doctrine, brother. And yet when trials and difficulties come, whenever they're faced with anxieties and discouragement, and there's this restlessness produced in them, where's their faith then? And this is real, this is practical, this meets you exactly where you are. What consolation does your faith give you when you suffer even to the point of death? These that were considering died in faith and yet their faith was not vain. Why was it not vain? The next thing we read is not having received the things promised. The next thing we're told is that there were promises that were given to these who believed and the promises they were given, they were exercising faith in things that were not fully realized. These saints died believing something that was not actually fulfilled in their lifetime. And so I ask again, can you think of anything, any promise of God that you're seeking to rest in and yet not seeing it fulfilled? Is there anything that comes to your mind The Lord has said this, and I'm seeking to live according to what He said and trust Him, but I'm not seeing that reality in my life. What application immediately to you? Consider just one example of this from Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, we're given some pretty glorious promises in this text. Matter of fact, we heard. Brother Tom Askell in the clip before referring to a different account, a different gospel account of this same truth. These promises were told in verses 7 through 11. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now, think of this how practical this is. You ever go to God in desperate prayer for an extended period of time, and he's just not answering you, and your Bible tells you, ask and you will receive. God, I'm asking, but I'm not receiving. There's a promise that you're clinging to and you're not quite seeing the fulfillment of it in your life. Where does your faith go in those times? God said this, I'm not seeing it. There's a discouragement that sets in if we're not prepared to understand these things in their proper setting. How many of us would dare to admit that we've been or are currently Frustrated with God over unanswered prayer? Is there anything in your heart right at this very moment? Something you've asked God for that He has not done? And you have bitterness developing in your very soul. Do you suppose that God has lied to you? Has God not kept His Word? Well, let me immediately remind us of this. What is the substance of all that God has promised to us? Every promise of God that you read of, there is a fulfillment. There is a certain and sure fulfillment. What is it? What is the end of all of God's promises? We find in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. Jesus Christ, cover to cover this book, is telling you, Jesus, look to my Son. Look to the One in whom I love. That's the answer to... We may maybe mock a little bit and say it's a Sunday school answer. What's the answer to the question? It's always Jesus Christ. Always it comes back to Jesus. How do you see those things even that you're coming in prayer to God with and saying, Lord, I'm asking You this. The answer to the Christian is found in the person of His Son. Knowing and seeing Christ as the fulfillment and end of all things. What I'm telling you is this. If your expectation of any of God's promises does not find its crowning crescendo in Jesus Christ, you are not understanding the very substance of the Christian faith. If you're expecting or longing or looking to see God the Father answer your prayers or your desires in some way that's disconnected from Jesus, it is a wrong expectation. I'm not saying that there aren't glorious blessings and things that we enjoy from God related to our families and our children and all of our lives. Even financial things we praise God for. But all of those things are meant to lift our eyes to His Son. Even just last night, talking with Brother Nathan, considering the glory of God's goodness and His promises to us, I recall we were talking about this very thing and considering Christ being the focus, Christ being the fulfillment, Christ being the end of everything. Everything in this life. Jesus, He's where we look to find the things which God has promised to us. Consider the way in which this chapter begins. Verse 1 of Hebrews 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We want to know how is faith going to be at work in me, causing me to persevere, causing me to endure, saving and protecting and shielding me from apostasy. How is that going to happen? Faith, being assured of things you're hoping for. You see, if our faith is dependent upon what we're able to see, experience, and measure according to our flesh and our experience, it's not faith. It's entitlement and confidence in our own faculties and our own abilities To see and to understand. Do you see what I'm saying to you? That if your confidence in God is only ever a reality when you're seeing the fulfillment of what you hope He might do, it's not actually trusting and having faith in the promises of God. It's saying, God, I'm going to believe You unless and until I reach a point where what You're doing in my life is not measuring up to what I want You to do. You bring God into judgment. You say, God, You've got to do what I want. Otherwise, I'm out of here. Faith is trusting and believing God. It's having assurance of things that you're not actually seeing. A guarantee from God about things that you're not seeing the full and final fulfillment of yet. Consider this with me from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1-9. through For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Somebody says, if I'm not primarily concerned with these temporal things and what my eyes see, what my hands handle, and am I going to be any use or any good in this life at all? The argument there of Paul is to say, wait just a minute. We who are looking to the eternal, to the everlasting, to the immortal, to be clothed with immortality, we who are looking this way, we are those who are the most seeking to please God in this tent, in this existence we have now. One of my favorite quotes by Jonathan Edwards was he said on one occasion that we ought to have eternity stamped on our eyelids. That you can't even close your eyes without thinking about eternity. Somebody says, if you're that committed to looking to this Christ and this heavenly, eternal, everlasting homeland, what use are you going to be here and now? You ought to go and read. I challenge you to go read about the legacy of Jonathan Edwards. The impact that his children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren had. How many vice presidents and leaders in a very practical way in this nation came from that godly line. I'm telling you that to see Christ is going to have the greatest. You cannot even begin to impact this world in which you live if you're not seeing Christ first. He must be the one whom you're reflecting in your life. And that's exactly what you see worked out in the lives of these saints. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. They're looking to something more. So my question is, Are you individually ever confronted by the uncomfortable truth of Scripture which challenges those things you thought before? Have you ever been tempted to have an attitude towards God which is critical if He doesn't bring about your desired result? I believe every saint in the Old Testament from Adam right down the line were those who were anxiously awaiting the promised seed which was given in Genesis chapter 3. Everyone who was looking to God and trusting His promises are looking forward to Jesus. They're looking to something that was promised to them. Something they were hoping and something they weren't seeing. And yet they believed and they longed to see it. And they died without having seen it fulfilled. What about you? Are you prepared to trust God's Word and His promises even if you come to your dying day without seeing them realized fully? Are you going to walk by faith by sight the next part of this expression in verse 13 says but having seen them and greeted them from afar now here we arrive at the fundamental and essential truth of all of our thoughts here today there is only one way of salvation there is only one way this homeland they're looking to is realized and expressed in this but having seen them and greeted them from afar there will only ever be one way of salvation. and It is faith alone in Jesus Christ. So here comes the question. How can it be that those who live so many years before Christ ever came in this context of the world in which they're living to be saved by believing in Jesus who had not come? How is it that they're looking, having seen Him and greeted Him, and yet the promise of His coming was not yet realized in their lives? The answer is they saw and they greeted the promise of Christ coming from afar. Consider it from 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 8 through 12. This is what it means that they saw and greeted these promises from afar. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 8 through 12. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things in which angels long to look. The singular faith that every saint, every child of God has all shared in their hearts and their minds who's ever lived has been faith in Jesus Christ. The Spirit of Christ at work in them, looking them, casting their gaze forward upon this Jesus, seeing Him. That's the answer. And again, we heard, and we could go on to read, as I considered earlier, what's Jesus' answer? Whenever they say, are you greater than Abraham who died? How is it that you're saying, Abraham died? What faith? How is it that Abraham did not taste death? How could that be? Jesus told us, and the rest of that section from John chapter 8. This is the way. This is how He did not taste death. Verses 54-59, through 59, Jesus answered, If I glorify Myself, My glory is nothing. It is My Father who glorifies Me, of whom you say He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, Are you not, you're not fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid Himself and went out of the temple. Here's the message. These saints of old were looking forward to Jesus Christ, and if they weren't doing that, they weren't converted. They weren't born again. They were not children of God, though they might have been in the physical nation of Israel. They did not know God if they didn't see Christ. They were looking forward to Him. And He is the only figure who has been and remains the heart and center of God's entire communication to man. Is Jesus Christ. They're not having seen them, they have seen them and greeted them from afar, but not having received them, not having seen the fulfillment of them, looking forward to the promises of God. Jesus told the Jews on one occasion in John five thirty nine, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Now again, how does this come to you and I? Because you and I are those who have seen the fulfillment. We have received in a sense. We've seen the things promised. Christ has come into the world. We have an advantage over these saints of old in that they were looking forward and they were seeing in a dimmer way, you might say, throughout the Scriptures that they had and the communication from God. We've been given perhaps a clearer revelation that Christ has come But these were looking forward, according to the Spirit of Christ in them, greeting from afar. And you and I are privileged to look back. And in many ways, I think it's appropriate to say, they greeted from afar things that had not yet come. You and I greet things from afar that have come. We look back and see Jesus did come into the world. Historically, biblically, He came, He bled, and He died, and He rose again. And that glorious message is the bedrock of our faith. And we look back, and yet, and yet, there are things that we, like they, are still anxiously awaiting, are there not? Christ has not returned the second time. There are promises, there's a full consummation. There is a day when physical death will surely be swallowed up in life forever, never to die again. How are we to understand these things? The last part of verse 13 says, "...and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth." You see, one of the greatest theological errors that a person can make is to assume that the children of God in the Old Testament were primarily interested in physical and temporal blessings. Do you realize this? It's a common area today and you can find people, and I have no interest in getting into an eschatological debate, Whatever you think about the end times, you need to know this, that if your hope in the promises of God has a primarily physical fulfillment here and now, you are not looking to the same thing that these saints of old were looking to. And somebody says, what about the promises of Canaan? What about milk and honey? How can you say in light of all that they did in the land they traversed in order to come into these promises? And yet you find in Hebrews 4, there still yet remains a rest for the people of God. If Joshua had brought them into Canaan, in the eternal Canaan, that would have been the homeland. It would have been done. And the promises physically were fulfilled. He says so in Joshua. And yet, there remains a rest. A homeland. A place that we are going to. He says they acknowledge that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Now it is true to say, that God has often been pleased to use physical and material benefits as His own illustrations of how His promises were going to be fulfilled in Christ. And the heart's true desire of all of His people has never been limited to temporal blessings. Consider with me for a moment from Exodus chapter 33. Consider, and I even believe contextually in light of what's going on in this text we're going to look at, I don't even know that I could say with confidence that all of or the majority of these children of Israel here were circumcised in heart. That they were converted. And yet, listen to this expression. Ezekiel, excuse me, Exodus chapter 33. Consider this. Verses 1 through 6. from Mount Horeb onward. You know what the context of that is? Here you have had Moses up on the mountain fellowship and communing with God and the people grow restless. And so they have Aaron make this golden calf and they've got their golden jewelry that they brought out of Egypt. And here in the midst of their great sin, God has Moses tell them, "I've promised you this land, this physical land, flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to even send a mighty warrior angel to go and protect you and take you into that physical land. But I'm not going with you. You're not going to have presence, my presence with you. You're not going to have fellowship with God. You're going to have temporal land promises. The people say, no. What a disastrous and horrible thing. They mourned. They're grieved over the fact that God says I'm not going to be with you in this promised land. They wanted God. They wanted an experience with the living God that went beyond this world beyond the temporal, beyond the land promises. Think of how many people who profess faith in Christ, maybe you here today, if God were to tell you right now, you know what? I'm going to give you all the desires of your heart. I'm going to give you all the things that you truly desire. And I'm going to not come near you anymore. As a matter of fact, I'm going to remove my presence and you can continue on sinning however you want. Never feel convicted. And have all the good things that you want from me. How many people would say, oh, that sounds pretty good. Not have to be convicted over my sin, not have to face God honestly, not to have to wrestle through God speaking to me through his word and by his spirit confronting and challenging me. The people said no. We want God, the presence of God with us. That's how they respond to this. I'm saying that all of God's people for all time have always desired God. And their desire for God goes beyond and past the here and now. We're confronted again in that statement. We see what was the source of these people's hope. And as I mentioned, there were unconverted people in the nation of Israel. There were people in Israel with uncircumcised hearts who were more interested in the blessings than God Himself. But those who were genuine, they've always desired something more. I ask again, how do you measure up to that? How do you measure up to that? Are you prepared to look to God and Him alone, despite and with or without any of the blessings that He might give you? Is your heart more attached to comfort and the desires of this life than the one to come? You see, this says there are strangers and exiles. Are you a traveler passing through? Or would you prefer that this were your final stop? i got a quote here from you, and surely you know it, and if you haven't, rejoice to hear it. John Bunyan said, When a person becomes a Christian, it is no longer a priority to listen to the world. It is no longer a priority to care what the world may think. Everything changes. The world looks completely different. All of the temporal pleasures of this world become less enjoyable because a greater joy has been found. Thus you place your fingers in your ears, for you no longer care what the world's opinion is, and you run like a lunatic crying, life, life, eternal life. When you see Christ, is that not what He said? This is eternal life. What does it mean that Abraham would never die? He'd never taste death? Because he came to know life Himself. He came to know the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom he'd sent. This is eternal life. Knowing Christ, looking to Christ. Those who went before, they were strangers and exiles, and so too are you and I to be strangers and exiles in this world. Again, from 1 Peter in chapter 2, we find this verses 9 through 12. Then the Lord knows. Excuse me, that's 2 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And then he goes on in the context to talk about keeping your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Here's the picture. You're not like the world. You've been made different by God. Your eyes are fixed on another realm, another plane. You have another desire fueling your every thought. And yet you're called to live amongst those people. You're called to have an influence on those people, to impact the world. Well, how do you do that? Keep your conduct godly. Be like the three Hebrew children who stood out in Babylon. They stood out as those who were significant and different. Why? They were committed singularly to their God, even in the midst of their exile. And so we find, pressing on to verse 14, for people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. Now, hopefully at this point, the argument couldn't be any clearer. Obviously, if you're willing to endure exile, slavery, all manner of difficulty, suffering, wandering through a desert and wilderness, it would make absolutely no sense if your hope was in this life only. I want you to consider something that people often overlook in light of what our hope, what our faith rests upon. Think of this. Think of in the nation of Israel's history, how many people died without experiencing the temporal blessings of God that were promised to them? How many people died? As a matter of fact, the archetype of this one who did not enter into the physical promise was Moses himself because of the sin of the people. Now, did Moses have faith in Jesus Christ? Was he looking? Did he have a hope that went forward or was Moses lost? What does it mean that Moses never saw the physical land? means that His hope surpassed the physical promise. There was something more, something beyond it. And you see, if the end of God's good promise to Israel was going to be realized according to their entrance into and dominion of Canaan, then Moses and a great many other people who loved God never realized the fullness of God's salvation. And we could say the same thing about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that these men must have had their vision laser focused on a homeland other than the temporal. And that's really probably the strong appeal here in the context of Hebrews that there's this Abraham who's called out of Ur of the Chaldeans, Abram, go forth, I'm going to show you a place. He's looking for a homeland, a place to rest, a place to settle, a place to be. He's seeking a homeland. And it's not the place he was when God called him. I wonder how about you? What do you think? You hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, the summons from God that says, Come out, come out and be different, come out, come to the Lord, be set apart under Christ. You hear that? Do you imagine that you're going to, essentially, for most of your life, most things are going to look pretty much the same with a little Jesus on top? No, this is an entire existence you're called out of. They're seeking a homeland, and the homeland they were seeking was not the place they started. It is true as well for us. Are you beginning to see what encouragement exists in the light of apostasy? In light of the temptation to fall away? In light of the temptation to give up on Christ? It's that as you suffer, as you're tempted, as you're opposed, as you're a stranger and an exile in the world, be encouraged. So were they. Here are some men of God who went forward as exiles, as sufferers, as those who died and yet their faith in Christ endured because their faith in Him was not limited to the material domain. Have you resolved yourself to these things, death and suffering, heartache and misery and strife, and been able, made able to focus your attention on the life to come? Are you seeking an eternal homeland? Verse 15 says, If they had been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. That's essentially what apostasy is. Someone says, I've come out from the world. I've trusted in Christ. I'm a Christian now. And then, along the way, they find that their homeland they're seeking, their confidence, their faith, wasn't actually in Christ. He's not enough. He's lacking. I'm going to trample His blood under my feet because He is not measured up to my expectations. I'm going back to the world trying to go back to the place where they began. They missed their sin, they missed the life they lived before they pretended to follow Christ. That's essentially what apostasy is. They find themselves missing all the ways in which they used to live. What about you? Do you ever find yourself missing the things you used to get to do? I mean, frankly, if you're one who looks at all the things God tells you to do as some great restriction that's robbing you of blessing and joy, you have not begun to understand the truth of God's Word. God's commandments are sweet. His laws are good. The things He calls us to live according to, oh, they produce goodness in our lives, every single one of them. And the chiefest among them is loving His Son and finding your joy, your satisfaction in Christ. How could you ever have come to truly taste and see that the Lord is good and think there's anything else that could ever compare to Him? There is not. Nothing ever will and nothing can. They're seeking a homeland. And if they've been thinking of the place they came from, they could have returned. Consider it again from Exodus chapter 14. The way this is depicted to us in Exodus chapter 14, verses 10 through 12. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. What are we hearing in this? Here's this threat of affliction. God has delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt. And in the context He brings them, God does this. Listen, get this. God says, okay, children of Israel, Moses, you're going to go over here and you're going to come up against the Red Sea. And I'm going to put you between Pyre one mountain, Belzephon on the other, and then I'm going to summon... Pharaoh, by hardening his heart to come after you, and you're going to be utterly and completely trapped. You're an exile, you're fleeing out of Egypt, you're trapped, you've got nowhere to go but look up. That's the only option they had, and God positioned them there. And in the midst of that affliction, the people say, Egypt's looking pretty good, slavery sounding a little bit better, the whips on our backs, and all the things we enjoyed. At least we lived and knew what we were going to eat there. The desire to go back. To go back and to ignore the glory of God's deliverance. And if you're one here today that's being or has been tempted by the threatenings and opposition and difficulties of the Christian life as an exile. And you right now are being tempted to think it was so much easier whenever I did things the way and the pattern that the world was doing them. I could get along better that way. God in His grace and goodness sent a prophet A man called Moses to stir the people and remind them of what he was doing to turn their hearts back away from their desire to leave. The threatenings and the affliction that God's people go through tend towards despair. You know, Satan reminds us of our guilt. That's what's pictured in this. This looking back to the time when we were enslaved. For us as believers today, we look back to the time when we were enslaved to sin. You're reminded of your guilt and you feel hopeless. And you're also reminded of the fact that you have no strength to overcome whatever mountain or Red Sea or army you're up against. And it causes you to look up desperately to the Lord. You're reminded of guilt. And you know, Satan has always been known as the accuser of the brethren. These people constantly throughout the history of Israel, constantly tempted to return back to their vomit to return back to the land, the homeland they've come from. And Satan, bringing up their guilt, wouldn't you just be better off if you left the Lord? If you departed from Christian faith and enjoyed your sin in peace, you suppose you would be better off just serving the Egyptians? Listen to what this man Moses says. God stirs up the man Moses to the people in light of their temptation here. And He says in verses 13 and 14, to the people... Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. You hear this? Here's the charge. In the face of apostasy, there were people tempted to go back, and God said, Moses, go tell them to stand firm. Tell them to look to My salvation that they've not yet seen. They had, the Red Sea was still there. It has not been parted. Moses says, stand firm. Trust God. Have your faith in God. And how often do you and I need to be told the same thing? This always, these themes always remind me of the glory, and I appreciate much of what was said around the music this morning. But in studying, I thought of the second line in one of my favorite songs, um, Before the Throne of God Above. The second line goes this way. When Satan tempts me to despair, tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Here's the encouragement. In the temptation of apostasy and falling away, the answer is, look at the Christ who has satisfied the Father for you. You look to Jesus. Be grounded in this encouragement to press on in opposition. Even death. That there's a hope that is not tethered to this life alone. You see, it's not the goal of getting what we had before. It's the hope of a homeland which is yet to come. And that brings us into our final verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Now, as if, as if, to be this completed shield against any wrong interpretation. As if the author's saying, there's no, no, we're not going to misunderstand what I'm saying here. He presents this to us and he says, as it is, they desire a better country. What if he had just left it at that? How many of us today look around and see wickedness in high places and evil and say, well, I desire a better country too? Let's go back to the 50s, maybe, huh? Is there a better country that we're looking to beyond that one? He doesn't leave it to just a better country, does He? He's there's something more. There's this heavenly One. This heavenly One. He makes it clear what He's referring to goes beyond even the here and now. And many people, I fear, imagine that the future, the hope, the promises, and the blessings are somehow related to a futuristic experience of a blessed nation on the earth as it is now. And unfortunately, many Christians are so committed to their systems of belief that they go on expecting a better country that's limited to a very carnal expression. And yet we're told this better country is a heavenly one. It's a heavenly country. It's a country which far surpasses the temporal sufferings of this life. This better country is one that is guaranteed even if you die. It's an eternal. Remember, these all died in faith. So even if you die, this heavenly country is one that's still a reality. I hope that you have the promises of God that far surpass our hope or expectation in the presence of God. And so I ask, what are the implications of your desire for this better heavenly country? What do your expectations concerning God's promises reveal about who you think God is? It was A.W. Tozer, I believe, who said that whatever comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And I believe it's also true to say that our expectations around God's promises reveal to us what we think God's character is. Consider it this way. He says there's this heavenly country, this one that's to come, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. I'm going to tell you something. If you look at this fallen, sin-cursed world, and you see and believe that the eternal and unchanging promises of God are so great, so perfect, and so much better than anything you might realize in this world and in this life, that says something about what you think of God. God says, there's this expression in, in Ephesians where, where Paul's telling us about Christ and His resurrection and how he, he led a host of captives and He gave gifts to men. But before that, you read that, that there's this gift that's been given, there's this expression according to the measure of Christ's gift. And here's the picture there. Christ in His ascension back to the Father, there's this overwhelming overflow of the blessings of Christ on His people And this expression according to the measure of Christ's gift. Think on it this way. Suppose I were to decide I wanted to financially bless every person sitting in this room. Now, I'm not prepared to do this, but just keep this illustration in mind. Suppose I wanted to bless you all financially and take all that I owned, every dollar, and divide it up amongst you all evenly. What would determine my ability to do that? How much would each individual person be blessed and encouraged? What would determine that? My wealth. How much do I have to give? What are the depths of the storehouses of what I have to give? And when we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ, there's no end to those storehouses. And this isn't some carnal, superficial call to temporal prosperity. That's the opposite of this entire message. But we're reading here this eternal blessing, this eternal kingdom, this heavenly kingdom, heavenly homeland is immediately related to the One who's promised it the eternal endless glories and beauties of Christ. And so I say that if you look out here and we can see all the glorious beauties of God that are declaring His praise as we look in the world in which we live, and yet it's fallen and death reigns. And it continues to. People die. And it's a testimony to us that the world has remained. The creation itself groaning for the revealing of the sons of God so that whenever the final elect person is converted... The world is going to be remade. There's a glory awaiting this. But it's related to who you think Christ is. Who is God? If your expectations of God are limited to trifling blessings of health or wealth or success in this life, that is a skewed portrayal of the limitless riches of God. God is not ashamed of those who trust Him. That's what we're told. What am, What is... All of, I'm saying here, what does it have to do with this? God is not ashamed of those who trust Him. Here's the answer. We believe in one whose goodness and blessings cannot be contained nor measured, and they stretch out into eternity. The glory, the power, and goodness of God, we cannot even fathom the the depths of the riches of the glory of our God and King, and it goes on forever. And when I say that, you still have to draw a line in your mind because your mind can't go into forever. Forever. And that's how great and glorious God is. This is the nature of the homeland He's promised. And we can't even measure it. And for those who trust in Him, He's prepared this eternal city with Him in His presence to demonstrate the endless glory of His matchless name. And here's my argument, that those who have an infinite hope and an infinite God will not be put to shame. And God is not ashamed when His people expect much of Him. If you claim things God's never promised, well, you're bordering on blasphemy if not there. You're telling God what He has to do. But if you take what God has promised and you hold on to it with all your might and you understand it biblically, God's not ashamed of a person who does that. One who trusts Him according to what He Himself has said. 2 Corinthians. Final two verses I want to look at. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 first. Verses 16-18. through To encompass all that I'm telling you This is that eternal, everlasting, better country, that heavenly homeland that we're looking to. And then from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. And it's not that the glory of what God has promised and prepared has not been told to us, but we can't imagine how wonderful and how eternal and everlasting that is. We can't see the ends of it. It's an ocean, a sea with depths we can't plumb, we can't get to the bottom of this thing. It's endless in its scope. It goes on forever and ever. And the charge is that we would trust God, and even as we began, What is going to be the source of your confident assurance? It is singularly the result of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He is the one in whom we are to place all our faith and all our love, all our affection and all our hope. And the testimony of these saints of old is this. They were looking to what was promised them in Christ. And the argument is not, well, how much more is revealed to us in the light of the New Testament that we at least see clearly that they saw dimly. They trusted and believed God. If you're one here today that says, oh, these theological terms are beyond my understanding, so how can I have confident assurance? Listen, you have access to so much more than even they had in an academic sense. They trusted God and they knew the character of God and they experienced the power and presence of God with them. So they trusted Him and they looked to Him for that. And that is going to be the strong encouragement. And that's where he goes into the beginning of chapter 12. There's this cloud of witnesses, these figures of old. What's true of them? They believed God. They were looking to His eternal promises, trusting Him. And they died trusting Him. As we saw with Abraham, if you come to faith in Christ, you have a life that never ends. Eternal life doesn't begin when you die and go to heaven. When you're born again, you believe God, you have eternal life. And I pray, I pray, that if you have not trusted in Christ, you would turn and trust Him. And if you're having trouble or difficulty at all, in any temptation or discouragement, that you would look to Jesus Christ, the captain of your soul and salvation. I pray these things are an encouragement to you, and I trust that the Lord is pleased in His Word going forth. So with that, I will go ahead and close, and I'll ask you to bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, O Lord, no no human being save Your Son who is incarnate for us is able to delve the depths of the glories and wonders of Your everlasting kingdom and promises. And yet, Lord, You speak to us. Lord, these things are incomprehensible and yet we're given insights and Your Word and we're told truth. And I pray these things would be planted in our hearts that You, O God, would be pleased to encourage Your people to call those who are currently in a desperate state of having no hope in an everlasting city and their sins have yet to be forgiven in their own heart and experience, O God, I pray You would bring them to repentance and faith. Lord, I ask that You would bless our time and bless the fellowship. Lord, we rejoice to even witness the profession of one today who has been given a hope, faith, and a homeland that will not fade away. Lord, I thank You so much for all Your goodness. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.